0: I'm excited to open God's word with you this morning. And before we do so, would you join me as we go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to to transform us through his word. Lord, you are so good. You are awesome. We love you. We thank you for this Sunday. Thank you for all the exciting ministries that you have here at our church for the events coming up. Father, we take a moment to pray for our fall carnival. Thank you for how you will uh, make Jesus known through this Ministry is more than just an event, and so, Father, I thank you for all the volunteers here at our church who will participate that afternoon, who are participating through candy donations. And, Father, we are asking that you would raise up some people specifically for our Boulevard Traffic Control Ministry. That's an important ministry because we want to make sure everybody is safe along Diamond Bar Boulevard. So, Father, maybe. Lord, uh, some here right now are hearing this and uh, they're feeling this uh, tug for them to, to reach out to our team and to volunteer to help out. And so thank you in advance for what you will do on October 31st. Thank you for our DK Action Team. Thank you for their love for you, their desire to equip our church and all churches to be part of the solution to domestic abuse. And Father, now as we open up your word, um, Thank you, God, for your eternal word, your living word. I pray that it would transform us today and every day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The title of this morning's message is God's Story Through the Old Testament Narratives. God's Story Through the Old Testament Narratives. We are currently in a series called Boundless, a study of God's word and We've been enjoying studying for this and preparing this and teaching this. We hope that you've been enjoying this series as well. In week one, we laid the foundation. Remember, we talked about what it means to be a good student of God's Word. We want to be good students of God's Word. So we laid the foundation. In week two, Pastor Luke taught on the New Testament letters and how it's important for us to know the context of a letter. You would never just pick up a letter right in the middle and pick out a word or sentence without knowing its context. And so we want to apply those types of principles to the Word of God. And last week, we looked at the important role of Bible translation. Today, we continue with another another important message. And today, we're going to cover the single most common type of literature that you will find in all the Bible. is the genre known as narrative. Did you know that over 40%, nearly half the entire Old Testament is narrative? Another word for narrative is the word story. Now, the following Old Testament books are entirely composed of narrative material. And those books include Genesis, and Joshua, and Judges, and Ruth. And you can see these up on the screen. There you go. And 1 and 2 Samuel, and 1 and 2 Kings, and 1 and Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and then Daniel, Jonah, and Haggai. So these books are entirely composed of narrative. And in addition, there are other books in the Old Testament that have large portions of narrative. Those include Exodus, and Numbers, and Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, and Job. And so these are all either narrative in its entirety or a large portion. By the way, it's also good to know that uh, there are many parts of the New Testament that are narrative. The Gospels, the book of Acts, these are narrative portions. But for today and our purposes, we're going to focus our time on Old Testament narrative. And to be even more specific, we're going to narrow it down to Hebrew narrative. And the reason why it's so important as good students of God's Word to understand that God revealed Himself in much of the Old Testament through these narratives, it's important for us to understand how to read the narratives because the reality is so many well-intentioned Christians today Misinterpret and ultimately misapply Old Testament narrative. In fact, Christians misinterpret Old Testament narrative more than any other genre in the Bible. So it's important for us as good students to understand how to read them accurately and properly. Now, do you remember way back in week one? We, we said that it's important to understand whenever we read Scripture to start with then and there. Remember that phrase? Then and there. Don't start with here and now. You always start with then and there because if we start with here and now, which is very tempting, then we will read all kinds of inaccuracies into the Word of God. And remember, we want to be good students of God's Word. So hopefully by the time we're done here today, we'll learn how to read the, the Old Testament narratives with a clear, accurate understanding. And to do that, what I'm going to do is this. I'm going to give you three principles that we can apply whenever we open the Old Testament narratives, keep these three principles in mind. Along the way, we'll share some examples, and then we'll close out our time by looking at one particular narrative. So if you're ready, here's the first principle to apply whenever you read the Old Testament narratives. One, keep this in mind, the Bible is one unified story of God's redemptive plan. Every time you open an Old Testament narrative, it's important that you remind yourself it is one unified story of God's redemptive plan. Now, I'm going to talk more about redemption later on in the message. But for now, I want you to know this. Each individual narrative in the Old Testament is not an isolated story with no connection to any other event. And that's why it's important, especially for children. All right, parents, if I could share this with you. It's important that children from a young age, that they are taught that each account in the Old Testament works in conjunction with all the other accounts. They are not isolated stories, okay? So it's not enough to hear about Jonah in the belly of a big fish, and then just to color a book, and then wonder, wonder to ourselves, oh, I, I wonder how he survived in that belly. That's so tempting. Oh, was he cold in there? Did he eat anything? And so it's not enough for us to just wonder and be curious about what took place in the belly of that fish. It's not enough to hear about little David destroying this massive giant with just a sling and a stone. And then think to ourselves, we too can defeat the giants in our lives. But that's a common mistake that we make. We look at that story of David defeating this giant, and we think, oh, wow, how can I do that in my life? You see, the mistake that we often make is we reduce each individual account in the Old Testament to these self-contained stories with no bigger purpose, We need to keep the big picture in mind if we're going to understand the Old Testament narratives. And and this isn't something that just children need help in. Quite frankly, most adults get it wrong too. And in fact, in Jesus' day, the religious leaders, they didn't get it. That's why Jesus said to them in John chapter 5, In verse 39, he said, you search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life, but the scriptures point to me. And by scriptures, Jesus was talking about the Old Testament. The religious leaders, they knew their Old Testament, but Jesus knew it better than they did. And he said, hey, the Old Testament, they point to me. So the first principle that we must keep in mind is that it is one unified story of God's redemptive plan. Here's a second principle to keep in mind whenever you open up the Old Testament narratives. There is a difference between descriptive and prescriptive passages. There is a difference between descriptive and prescriptive passages. When you and I, when we go to our doctor, And when our doctor prescribes a medication for us, here's what usually happens. The office sends an order to your preferred pharmacy. You go to that pharmacy, you go to the pickup window, you give your name, your date of birth, and you get the prescription. But before they release you, what often happens? The pharmacist comes over and gives you instruction on how to take that medication because it is crucial how you follow those instructions. So that's a prescription. Whenever you and I open up God's word in the narratives, we must ask ourselves, is this a description or a prescription? In other words, is what I'm reading a description of what took place, or is this a pattern for me to follow in my own life? Did you know that much of the Old Testament narrative is just simply description and not necessarily a prescription for us to mimic. I want to take you to an account in the book of Judges. I invite you to turn to Judges chapter 6. We'll start in verse 36. Judges is in the Old Testament. You have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Then you have Joshua, and the seventh book is Judges. Turn there to Judges chapter 6 to verses 36 and 37. And this account, you may know, has been named the Gideon's Fleece account. Gideon's Fleece. I'll start in verse 36. Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand as you have promised, look I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you said. Sure enough, here's what happened. The next morning, Gideon wakes up early and he takes that fleece and he squeezes out all the dew, enough to fill a bowl, but the ground around that fleece was completely dry. It was a miracle. But Gideon, he wasn't quite sure yet. You see, he was still afraid, he was lacking in faith. You gotta understand, the context is this God commanded Gideon to take his army and to battle against the Midianites. But Gideon wasn't sure that they would be victorious. And so he kind of put God to the test. God, if you do this, then I will know that we will be victorious. But because he was still not sure, even after God made this fleece all soaking wet and the ground remained dry, look at verse 39. Then Gideon said to God, do not be angry with me. Let me make just one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece. But this time, make the fleece dry and let the ground be covered with dew. And that night, God did so. Only the fleece was dry and all the ground was covered with dew. This is an incredible experience. So first, for the fleece to be wet and the ground dry, miraculous. And equally miraculous, the fleece to be dry while the ground was wet. Now, based on... On this account in the Old Testament, the temptation for some today might be to determine God's will by, quote, putting out the fleece, like Gideon did. God, please give me a sign, give me any sign. Today, if I walk out my door and you give me this sign, I know it's your will for me to do this and that. If I don't see this sign or if I see another sign, that means don't do this or that. And this happens all too often. God, I don't know. Should I visit my relatives on the other side of the country? Should I get on that airplane? I don't know if I should or not. God, please give me a sign. Should I fly and visit my relatives? And then you look at your watch at that moment and it reads 747. (laughs) Oh, 747. That's a sign. That's a sign, Lord, 747. I would be more impressed if your watch read 767. (laughs) That would be a miracle. But let's face it, how many times in our own lives have we said, God, just give me a sign. And then we interpret everything around us as that sign for me. Now, does that mean that we should never consider signs? No. Signs can play a role in our lives. Yes, it's true that God might open certain doors and then close other doors. But did you also know that a closed door may not necessarily be a sign to give up? It just may mean knocking harder. So you see, it's not always easy for us to interpret circumstances based on signs and using those signs as our motivation to do Or not do certain things now of course there's got to be a reason why this account was in the bible and yes we can actually learn something from Gideon's experience but it may not be what we think initially you see again because oftentimes we Christians we make the mistake and we think wow i got to follow that pattern, and i got to put out the fleece just like Gideon did. But in reality, the lesson for us really is this, that God is a gracious and patient God. Gideon lacked faith. God is a gracious and patient God, especially when our faith is weak. You know, I, I wish I was half as patient with others as God is patient with me. Sometimes I think to myself, don't they get it? Sometimes I ask myself, why can't they get it? Why can't so-and-so get it? It's plain to see. God is patient with us. In church, we have everything we need in His complete word to trust in Him. Did you know that no single sign could add anything to God's Word? His Word is sufficient. Why spend all our time and energy looking for signs when we have God's Word right in front of us? Did you know that Jesus, on two separate occasions, He said that a wicked and adulterous generation seeks for signs. His point when he said that was all the signs had already been given. He, Jesus, was the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. They needed nothing else. As followers of Jesus Christ today, we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. In fact, because we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, we actually have an advantage of those of old who didn't. And the Holy Spirit illuminates the Word. The Holy Spirit allows us to see the truth of God's Word. And so if you have a major decision to make, a decision that might alter your life, the life of a loved one, look no further than to God's Word. He will tell you through his word what he desires of you. And by the way, if I can say this. The Bible is not simply a book of good morals. That's a mistake that a lot of people today make when they go into the Bible. You see, our goal is not to become good people by following a prescription in order to find favor with God can I say that again? Our goal is not to become good people by following a prescription in order to find favor with God. No, here's how it works. God transforms our hearts from the inside out, and then he prescribes to us a way of living that reflects our transformed hearts. God transforms our hearts first and foremost. He then prescribes through his word a way of living that allows us to live according to that new nature. And that is why we can look at prescriptions like Colossians 3, verse 12. Here is a prescription for you to follow. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. You see, the Apostle Paul, he wasn't saying, do all these things to find favor with God. He's saying, if you are God's chosen people, which you are, live like people who have eternal life. We often get it backwards. We often think, wow, the book that we know as the Bible is a book of good morals. If I follow these good morals, I will become a good person and God will accept me. So just remember, whenever we read the Old Testament narratives, ask yourself, is this a descriptive passage or a prescriptive passage? More often than not, you'll find that it's a descriptive passage. And in fact, I will say this. You will find principles within these descriptive passages, and these principles might be implicit, but those principles will often be found very explicitly in other passages in the Bible. What you're reading in the narrative is simply a description of the account that took place. Our goal is not to mimic what we read in those accounts, so certainly do not mimic Gideon, you got to have more faith than that. So that leads us now to the third principle, and that's this. Get ready. It's not all about me. And yet, I fear that this is probably one of the biggest mistakes that Christians make today. We approach the Bible thinking, it's about me. Whenever we open the Old Testament narratives, or the Gospels, or the New Testament letters for that matter, any part of the Bible, the most important question is not, and this might sound surprising, okay, the most important question is not, how does this apply to me? That is not the most important question, We can certainly ask ourselves that question along the way, but it should never be our starting point. When you open the Bible, the first question in your mind should never be, how does this apply to me? And it's tough because ours is a pragmatic society. We love practicality. I love practical things. Practical things make life easier. I get it. But did you know that the Bible was not written to be a how-to book? The Bible is not a how-to Now, certainly, there are things in there that we can learn from, but it was not written with that as its end goal. Parents, did you know that the Bible was not written to be a parenting handbook? Certainly, you can learn about parenting in the Bible. But first and foremost, the Bible was not written solely to be a handbook for parents. Oh, and by the way, the Bible was not written to be a financial planning handbook. Yes, you can learn about finances and being godly in finances in the Bible, but it was not written to help you improve your financial management. And did you know that the Bible was not written to be a leadership management handbook? Yes, you can learn about those things. But don't think that the Bible, first and foremost, was there to help you learn how to manage people. Again, we can learn these principles. And we can go down the list of practical issues that we face every day. But the Bible is not, first and foremost, a how-to handbook. If we view the Bible that way, then our starting point every single time is in the wrong place. And that wrong place is usually a focus on self. And we live in a self-absorbed society. And we often carry that mentality into the church without even knowing it. Uh, This week I came across, uh, I, I think, one of the most profound articles that I've read in a long time. And this pastor wrote about this particular subject. And I want to share a little quote from this article. And he starts out this article with a question. And so this is what this pastor writes. He says this, What's the first question we ask of the Bible in our personal reading times or church services? How is this relevant to me? This is the wrong question entirely. No question could push us further from the real story. It's very much like walking out into the night sky and assuming all the stars showed up to look at us. Let that sink in. We walk out and we look at the stars and we assume they all showed up to look at me. I hate to break the bad news to us all here, but we are not the center of the biblical universe. We are not the center of the biblical universe. It is not about me. By the way, when I say it's not about me, I can also extend that beyond just the individual. It's not about me and my circle. It's not about me and my constituency. It's not about me and those who agree with me. We are not the center of the biblical universe. You see, because that's too narrow a view of the Bible, way too narrow. And so we want to be careful every time we approach a passage that we do not take it out of context and use that passage as a rallying cry for our own agenda. It's not about me. You know that's why I really appreciate. Uh, you know when we go through rooted, I find it so refreshing when uh, I read excerpts from uh, leaders from around the world. It's so refreshing because we can become so so narrow in our perspective here in our corner of the world. So it's refreshing, it's good, it's healthy to read and to be exposed to uh, followers of Jesus Christ from around the globe because we realize we are not the center of the biblical universe. God, of course, is. And so every time we ask ourselves uh, or every time we think about the question, how is this relevant to me? We've got to stop and just simply ask the question, what does God's word say? Period. Remember, our goal is to get to the plain meaning of the text. Too often, Christians look for hidden meanings that speak only to them in their immediate context. The Bible is much, much bigger than us. Did you know that the Bible must have had meaning for its original audience? You see, another way to say that is this. The Word of God can't mean something today that it didn't mean back then. So we want to be careful not to try to read into Scripture all these hidden meanings to fulfill our own personal agendas. That's a very individualistic approach to God's Word, and that's not how the Word of God is intended to be viewed. Yes, we all have our own stories, and we all have our own experiences, but did you know that even in our own experiences, in our own stories, did you know that we are not the main character in our own stories? God is, and He's the one who is writing our stories. Even in our own stories, and we all have our own story. The goal of our own story is always to point people to God. Otherwise, we just receive the glory. Our goal is to point people to God and his plan of redemption. And speaking of redemption, I want to take you to an Old Testament narrative that has been called by some the greatest short story in all the world. And some refer to it as the most beautiful love story of all time. And it's got all the ingredients of a a love story. A young lady from a foreign land meets a young man from another land. Their backgrounds could be no further apart than they are. And then, of course, like any love story, you have to have tragedy. And this one has tragedy. The young man dies. But then another man comes and rescues this young lady. On the surface, the book of Ruth is a brilliant piece of literature. It has been studied in classes, it has been marveled by many throughout the centuries. On the surface is a beautiful piece of literature, but you and I know that uh, Scripture is not merely literature. It's the eternal Word of God. The book of Ruth depicts so beautifully God's plan of redemption. Now, redemption is an important word. So I want to take a moment to make sure we all understand what the word redemption means. The word redemption is simply this. It's a payment to secure one's release. And the basic root word is where we get our English word ransom. So you can connect the words ransom and redemption. Centuries ago, the word ransom, it could refer to this general idea of of loosening, of, of releasing. And back then, it often referred to loosening one's clothing. Over the last year and a half there was a certain term that became kind of a household term maybe you heard it maybe you said it it's a term pandemic pants okay. and the idea is this that for the last year and a half with most people just working at home they wanted to be comfortable casual so they wore pandemic pants okay and and one celebrity i found this very humorous she said this recently about her pandemic pants that she wore for the last year and a half. She said this, uh, and these were her uh, black leggings, okay? So she loved her pandemic pants, right? And I'm sure many stores sold out of their black leggings. Okay, And here's what she wrote. My pandemic pants are so friendly. They're my best friend. They don't judge me, and they try their best to make me look good. And so these are the pandemic pants of this one particular celebrity. And so the idea is this. The idea is to to ransom, to loosen one's clothing, like these pandemic pants. They're stretchy. They're comfortable. It's like after your Thanksgiving meal next month, you're going to ransom your pants, right? You're going to undo that belt. You're going to kind of undo that button. You're going to ransom your pants. Over time, the word ransom became associated with ransom. Uh, releasing animals. So if you found a pony tied to a post, a cute pony, and you release that pony, you would say, go, be free. You ransom that pony. And then, of course, most recently, we associated it with kidnapping and a ransom note. All this to say, the writers of the Scriptures wrote about the concept of ransom or redemption, and they did so in a way that they understood that their audience those original recipients, they would know exactly what they were referring to when they talked about redemption or ransom. And during the era where the book of Ruth was written, if you owed a debt and you were unable to pay for that debt, then you could be sold as a slave and you would have to work off that debt. Thankfully, there was another way out of that debt. a a member of your family, an extended member, could come along and pay the debt for you. That family member would be known as your kinsman redeemer. And this redeemer would pay off your debt and at the same time redeem you from slavery. Are you starting to see the picture here? The principle of redemption not only applied to the individual, it also applied to property. It was an important feature in God's redemptive plan that land be kept in the family. You might say that uh, God was not a fan of foreclosures, okay? So that was part of his redemptive plan. In the book of Ruth, we find a beautiful illustration of a kinsman redeemer. Here's the story. An Israeli couple falls on hard times. They're living in Bethlehem, but there's a drought, a famine. So they have no other choice but to leave their land. They take their two sons and then go off to a neighboring country called Moab. They go to Moab. And eventually, these two sons... They marry young ladies from this country. Now, Moab was a country known for its heathen practices, very different of a culture than what this couple knew back in Bethlehem. But these two young sons of theirs found these two wonderful young ladies and married them. But then tragedy struck First of all, the father, Elimelech, he dies, leaving behind his widow, Naomi, and his two sons and their two brides. But the tragedy continues. The two sons die, and all you're left with are three ladies related not by blood, but purely by marriage, Naomi and her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. Eventually, Naomi gets word that God comes to the rescue back in Bethlehem. The drought ends, so she can now go home. So she calls her two daughters-in-law to her and says to them, I'm going home. You can now go back to your parents. To which Orpah says, thank you. And she returns to her parents. But Ruth Ruth, she refused to leave her mother-in-law. And in those famous words, she says, wherever you will go, I will go. Wherever you will live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. And so Ruth refused to leave her mother-in-law. Now, all you daughters-in-law, before you start feeling guilty, that you're not appreciating your mother-in-law enough. Remember this. The Old Testament narratives are not how-to manuals, okay? So don't go to the book of Ruth and say, oh, I need to be a better mother, uh, daughter-in-law. And certainly, please, mother-in-laws, don't go to the book of Ruth <laughs> and, and, and post that on your daughter-in-law's mirror, okay? Please, please don't do that. You see, that that would be Uh, it's all about me, right? And so the book of Ruth is not a prescriptive account. It's describing to us what took place in God's overall plan of redemption. The book of Ruth is all about God's redeeming plan. Eventually, a man by the name of Boaz comes into the picture. He marries Ruth, and he becomes Ruth's kinsman redeemer. Boaz and Ruth have a son. Now, you can imagine how overjoyed Ruth and Boaz were to have a son. You know, the only person happier than Ruth and Boaz about their son, the only person happier was, you know who? Naomi, right? The grandmother, right? And all you grandparents, you can relate. This that special bond between grandparent and grandchild. I think grandchildren are the single greatest factor in grandparents learning how to use the smartphone. <laughs> right, before grandchildren, I don't know how to use this thing, but now grandchildren, oh, FaceTime, Zoom, emoji, emoji, emoji. And so grandparents, you have this special bond with grandkids. I get it. Newborn babies have this ability to breathe new life into people. And that's how it was for Naomi. Her friends saw the sparkle in her eyes. I invite you to turn to to Ruth chapter 4. Look at verses 14 to 17. And I want you to see the most important feature in this story. Ruth chapter 4, verses 14 to 17. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of who? David. And so out of the brokenness and sorrow, God faithfully brought hope and a future. The Word of God tells us that Obed would be the grandfather of the greatest king Israel would ever know, David. And here's God's redeeming plan. It was from the line of David that would come, the kinsman redeemer of the world, Jesus Christ. That's the story of Ruth. That's the story of any account in the Old Testament narratives. It is God's unified story of his plan of redemption. And it points us to Jesus. If we can remember that every single time, we'll set out on the right path. I encourage you this week, pick up a narrative in your Bible read that narrative and remember this is one unified story of God's redemptive plan is a description of what took place and it's not just about me it's about God and his plan and how we all we all fit into that plan would you bow with me Father, I thank you so much for your word. Lord, thank you for the Old Testament narratives. It is just so wonderful every time we open up to an Old Testament narrative that we see your plan in action. Uh, Lord, our goal is not just to mimic all the individual characters to do what they do or to not do what they do. Uh, That's not our ultimate goal. We want to see your plan in place. We want to see how your plan is unfolding. And certainly, we want to know how we fit into that plan. And how we fit, God, is to be more and more like Jesus every day of our lives. If we are like Jesus, then we will not go wrong. So thank you for your plan of salvation. Thank you for your plan of redemption. Thank you for redeeming us. Thank you for freeing us from the bond, the bondage of slavery bondage to sin. Thank you for freeing us and giving us eternal life. So help us, Lord, to live in light of that holy calling. We pray in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.